New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Psycho-Spiritual Aspects of Grief and Love. My guest is known by the name of August Goforth. He is a spiritualist medium and also the author of several books, including The Risen, A Companion to Grief, The Risen, Dialogues of Love, Grief, and Survival Beyond Death, 21st Century Reports from the Afterlife Through Contemplative, Intuitive, and Physical Mediumship. Also, Grief, Ponderings from the Afterlife, and Tangible Dreaming. He is also using a different name because he keeps his two professions completely separate from each other. He is also a practicing clinical psychotherapist. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, August. I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here. You have, as as we've been discussing, a, a very rich and varied life. You have two different careers that you keep separate from each other. That's quite unusual. And uh, as you tell me, you began experiencing a certain degree of mediumistic abilities as a child. Perhaps we should start there. That's not an uncommon thing amongst people who later on discover that they're mediumistic to realize that they were the whole time as children, but uh, people either treated them as just having silly fantasies or special fr invisible friends. Um, my family did not. I'm the oldest of eight children. Um, and the second one didn't come along till some, some years later. And... Um, both my grandmothers were mediums, although they weren't called that. Um, in the one part of, I grew up in northern Appalachia, very, very deep mountains, lots of hillbillies. Um, so my one grandmother was sort of a hillbilly clan, and they referred, they had their own language for that. And my other grandmother was very, very religiously Roman Catholic Irish. And she was known in the very, very small village I lived in. Um, they often referred to her behind her back as a saint. And she would often sit down. People would come to her for healing or advice. And she would connect with people on the other side. But she wouldn't tell them that she was doing that. This was years later. I sort of learned from my father. So when I was very small, and and apparently I was exhibiting interesting things to them, it was recognized by a lot of my family members. It was, it, both sides were quite a large number of people. And it wasn't pathologized or um, poo-pooed in any kind of way. It was just sort of integrated into life because they obviously loved me very much. Um, but no one ever said to me directly, this is what you are or this is what you can do. They just kind of just let it be a natural part of the family environment and that was extremely helpful because that just a lot of people 
are talked out of their mediumship when they're children in some kind of a way or threatened out of it or scared out of it in some sort of a way. And then they forget about it, but things still happen. So they may say, well, I'm really very lucky or I'm very intuitive. And that's all true in some way. But it's kind of frustrating to the people in spirit around them who want to have a very more deep, meaningful connection with them. I was able to keep that deep and meaningful connection most of the time, except during the difficult times of adolescence and puberty that just completely messed everything up and fell apart and then eventually came back together in some way. An important part of your journey, obviously, is your relationship with Tim, who who was your lover, who who abandoned you, as I recall, because uh, he he was embarrassed, I think, that he contracted AIDS and, and didn't want to expose you to that. And uh, so you went through a very difficult time, uh, a separation prior to his death, and then uh, you experienced enormous grief over that. Enormous grief and, you know, the usual plethora of mixed emotions, paradoxical emotions of of grief and relief, basically. Um, it was during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, um, I lost not only him to it, but almost my entire social circle, over 100 people in all. So there, it's rare to find, there aren't a lot of um, gay men my age, at least here in the city. And it was considered a shameful thing because the government had abandoned us and church had abandoned us and the nation had abandoned us and the president had abandoned us and so it was would not be surprising you know psychologically and emotionally that we would abandon each other in some sort of way so it was not uncommon for a lot of of my friends to just sort of pretend that they didn't that they were fine and they were just going on vacation and then they would go somewhere else to die and um, Tim did that as well, too. He just sort of one day, instead of telling everyone, because there, was, there wasn't a lot of recourse. Hospitals were not safe place, places for people with AIDS in those days. And so we really had to take care of our own. Tim was so very proud that he um, just decided to end all relationships under the guise of finding some sort of spiritual path. And he went to live on an ashram for a while, and he got so sick the ashram had to carry him out feet first. And um, uh, it, I made great efforts. He tried to cover his path, but I was able to find out where he was actually staying with, with his mother in a neighboring state. So we reconnected for a couple months before he um, transitioned. That seems like that was a necessary part of his path, a necessary part of my path and my development. It kind of stimulated a lot of latent abilities now that I had that... I had never, I hadn't experienced since I was a small child. And suddenly after he, um, he about, about two years later, cause this is, is quite a process. Um, he just manifested physically for a few seconds in my presence and my whole world just turned upside down, but it, I realized my world had been upside down and it just rewrited itself. That, oh my gosh, like suddenly all these memories flash back as a child, experiencing the same kind of physical manifestations in this, this huge, rambling, old, deserted Victorian house my parents and I lived in. And um, 
all the what's called direct voice where people in spirit are speaking to you just seemingly out of out of the dark nowhere like that was a constant upbringing and i remembered all these things they taught me and they taught they had taught me how to read um so it's just fascinating how so the word that i like a lot which is most commonly used or ought to be most commonly used is the word orchestration that everything is orchestrated in in, in this huge unbelievably unimaginably complex way beyond belief and yet it all comes together in this harmonious way and it works and and when it works you become part of the, the, the cooperative component of that orchestration as well too and i've seen this in in um a, a lot of the psychotherapy patients i've had whether they're mediums or not or believe in it or not that there is kind of this what i call a psycho-spiritual process that emerges and that's what was happening to me so by psycho spiritual i mean something that's experienced internally and invisibly but not necessarily observable from the outside by other people or publicly in some sort of a way i know you uh, write about a very intriguing experience as i recall you were on a train and uh Tim manifested on that train in the form of uh, his his youthful self before I gather before you had ever met him, uh, but there was this elusive connection. And then later, after you had established ongoing communication with Tim, which we'll get into, uh, he explained to you how difficult that orchestration process was, how much preparation had to take place in order for uh, that experience to have occurred. His first answer to me was like later, I, it occurred to me like I kind of interested how was that done? Is, is that even a pertinent question? And his first answer was basically like, don't ask me. You know, I just did what they told me to do. They just pointed, go here, do this, say that. Um, because they didn't want me, he said they didn't, um, they, meaning what we're going to call scientists or technicians on their side, just wanted him, like like your doctor just wants you, like, like don't fight, don't fight the equipment, just like lay there quietly and listen to the music. That's basically what they wanted him to do. And I always wanted, I wanted to take things apart and see how they work and get an understanding. And a lot of what he shared with me was through a way of communication that we evolved, which more and more, less and less language was necessary, that it was almost a direct sharing of information um, that I, I think was first kind of uh, extrapolated by Robert, by Dr. Moody um, in his out-of-body experiences, and um, that information would just come to him in sort of these these um, buckets of information or balls of light. For me, I call them infospheres because they were very three-dimensional, palpable, tangible um, encyclopedias almost. It's just maybe that's what people call the Akasha library or something like that. But Tim and I communicate mostly through, originally through thought, and now it's through feeling, and now it's through something beyond that many times. You write quite a bit about grief and uh, what a powerful emotion that is and how uh, the emotion itself can propel one to have uh, a wide range of extraordinary experiences. It does. Um, grief was used in the first book um, by 
so the people, so this orchestration, the book was orchestrated, we'll say that much. And it was orchestrated. Um, it wasn't my idea. And it was actually the work of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people on what we'll call the other side in different dimensions. And just very slowly, it took nine years to get that information to go through. And because the information was so dense with meaning and, and layered with, with multiple uh, emotional energy that we sort of discovered that grief was the most common human experience that we all can identify that we will not be able to sidestep we will all experience grief so everyone can identify so there's this thread of grief sort of run like grief runs through joy it can run through sadness it can run through anger and so it's sort of this unifying human experience and then then the second book actually began to f- more focus on what grief is and the idea can grief be transformed and the answer was yes that grief is actually meant to be and it's an energy that isn't done yet it's a transformation of growth it's a transformation of evolution and most people really uh, the majority of people don't get to experience this transformation of grief easily if at all because of how our society views what we call death and um, we sort of step away from it and try to get over it rather than through it. And grief is the process that brings us through it. And when we come out the other side, we're transformed and the grief is transformed as well. I make it sound very easy. That all looks great on paper, but in life, it's, it's, it's a challenge. One of the reasons that you and Tim have been able to uh, establish this connection between the worlds, so to speak, is, is because you felt such grief. Yeah, the, the grief is like an opening up. People probably would identify with this. You just sort of feel like your heart is torn out and there's this hole and there's this emptiness. But then it's what we can do with that emptiness that makes all the difference in the world. So the grief is kind of a, it's sort of like uprooting a plant or being uprooted in some way or having to leave your home or losing something. It's, it's loss, but then you turn. it turns out that the loss actually is um, gain trying to, to, because the universe is always expanding. And so this is part of the expansion and the grief is, is part of that, which is hard to wrap our minds, minds around. So the book goes into great depth about how the mind, aspects of the mind try to sabotage that idea due to cultural or religious or personal beliefs and how to sort of soften those beliefs so that you can allow the grief to be transformative. And it, there's been, you know, a lot of studies about the effects of grief on all different kinds of um, populations of people, young, old, widows, widowers, and and um, the fascinating stuff to me is when people will privately report that they've had a lot of what I call numinous experiences as opposed to phenomenal experiences that after their loved one is gone, they have fantastic dreams that they've never had the likes of before, or they will actually... Um, start hearing the person talking to them or very often Liz Elizabeth Kubler Ross had that kind of experience where one of her patients actually walked into where she was working and sat down and it was very brave of her to to write about that and it just made her seem crazier in the eyes of her colleagues in some kind of way but but grief is a triggering event we could call trigger is kind of a negative word but it's an activation event Um, it can be but 
it, it doesn't happen easily. We're not educated about it for the great part. So most people kind of discover this stuff either as they're guided by maybe some um, spiritual guidance or religious guidance or a family member who loves them and is there for them or someone just says the right thing. Um, but it doesn't happen enough. So it, it's a subject that I you wouldn't think it, you'd want to talk about a, a lot, but people do want to talk about it. With regard to myself, I've lost my parents. I at one time lost my best friend. And many people would come to me and, and say, I'm sorry for your loss. But in, in my case, at least in those particular occasions, I didn't feel any grief. Uh, I, I don't think there was anything wrong with me, but it, it was a sense of, um, I think a sense of we'll, we'll be re reunited at some point in, in the future, maybe the distant future, and we're separated for now. But my own feelings at the time were more like, uh, you know, they've gone on a vacation or something. I never felt uh, any sense of loss. Uh, obviously you did. You felt, uh, now I haven't lost a lover that way or, or a spouse, but, uh, it seems to me that uh, not all deaths are accompanied by great grief. No, no, they're not. And it raises a lot more questions and it brings answers too, because it's a multidimensional experience or a multi-layered experience. And so some people may be up here um, where they're, they're, because of the circumstances, they actually are feeling relief for themselves and the person who, who transitioned. Or they may be very well, well down here in the dark depths of hopelessness where they feel completely lost at sea. And it also depends just on how, what kind of connections or codependencies that they had with this person in this relationship. Um, also, whether people realize it or not, the person who is now, we'll say, no longer in the body, who's disembodied, um, they're in a different body can still impact us in some way. Like they're still whispering sweet nothings into our ears. They're still making suggestions. They're kind of stroking us and saying, it's okay, it's all right. And sensitive people will, will feel that, but it's also a very, very private, again, psycho-spiritual experience. It's internal. Um, and people may make insensitive comments like, well, you seem really cold and caring, uncaring about this, or you seem kind of distanced about that. And then we take into um, just physiological reactions of shock delayed shock there's very often delayed grief um sometimes it's it's explainable why it's delayed that people are repressing it directly due due to internalized belief systems um other times they're kind of lost in a sea so it's it's a transformative ex experience that's why i'm so fascinated by it that, that people experience it in different ways and it's very interesting to hear people share about that. When my parents, my parents passed, I felt relief, like, oh, thank God, it's about time. Um, and then my relationship in the past couple of years with them has changed because they've changed. And we've, we've picked up where we left off a long time ago. And now they have a greater understanding in perspective, a very different perspective of me and of life and of what our relationship was. And we've shared that. So we have this continuing relationship going on even now. Um, because I want it as well too, because we don't, ha 
oftentimes there are people who pass over that we don't want anything to do with anymore. It's just like good and riddance. Thank God they're gone. And, and that's okay. But with my parents, I've, I've sort of achieved a very different level of love that wasn't achievable when they were in body. I have heard it said, uh, and I think by some spiritualists or esoteric teachers, that it's not a good idea to uh, wish for the deceased to, to return and to be close to us because they need to progress on their own journey and uh, they shouldn't be... Um, Attached to the earthly plane, uh, they need you need to let go. I th I gather that that's not quite your experience, nor my understanding. That's that's sort of there needs to be some sort of updating or correction in that that which is a limiting belief that you know, um, they're they're big boys and girls. They can take care of themselves. You know, if if they don't want to answer the phone when we're trying to call them, they won't. Um, they're, they're going through all kinds of guidance. Also, their experience of time is very, very different than the way we experience time. They do have, have an experience of time, but it's very, very different. So, um, what I've learned is it, it is possible for them to feel our anguish and they will come to realize much more quickly than we will because of time that 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 anguish is not helping anybody it's not doing anyone good that that's also part of their transition process and their transformational process and oftentimes that just comes to them in a flash um it doesn't take a lot of understanding for them to do that it takes a long longer time for us to understand that our anguish isn't necessarily doing any good that it's not so much impacting them in a negative way it's holding us apart from them which they might experience in, in a negative way love is a very important emotion when it when it comes to the communication between these these realms it it's one of the things that that keeps our society together here on the physical plane and it, it seems that love is often so strong that uh, even death even the grave doesn't destroy it. No, it doesn't. And I, I would say my understanding, my experience of love is that it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's all there is. Um, and then we have feelings and emotion within the sea of love because love is the great ground from which we all um, arise and have a relationship with the greater sea of love, but also with ourselves as love too. So um, love encompasses all emotions and all feelings and, and true love doesn't care if there's anger, it doesn't care if there's fear, it doesn't care if there's worry, that those aren't very real to love. Love just kind of um, uh, neutralizes those, those less than positive aspects. I often wonder about uh, how our experience of love is conditioned by the fact that that we are in. Uh, I love like the term you use, bioforms. We are in mammalian bioforms, and and so we experience love as mammals. I think mammals tend to be very loving animals, say, as opposed to. Um, I don't know, perhaps uh, arachnids or insects. Uh, but you write about um, pets. You talk about um, your cat, and, and I think Tim's uh, also had cats. 
And uh, I wonder how that works in terms of uh, afterlife connections. Yeah, I've had and have a lot of animal companions, and I grew up with a lot of different animals. And my parents were very relaxed about they had some boundaries about which animals I could bring into the house, but I brought in some strange animals and had relationships with them. It's harder for me to experience the transition of an animal companion than it is a person. Um, it, because at least with people, there's a chance, good chance that they can talk to me and tell me what's going on and tell me what they're experiencing and learning. And animals already seem to know with complete wisdom exactly what's going on. And so they don't have this emotional investment in, in fear in some sort of way other than when they see maybe and feel the fear and anxiety coming out of my bioform. Their bioforms totally understand what's going on because they're so tuned in to their um, instincts. And they don't think about it. They don't have that thinking aspect of self-reflection of the brain. Um, perhaps people will have different experiences with higher forms of mammals um, that we consider maybe even more intelligent than, than we are. But it's because, for me, this is my experience, that, that my animal companions are so childlike um, that I can only imagine I don't have human, I don't have children, human children. Um, but I can imagine this must be what it feels like when, when pay people or my psychotherapy patients have lost a child. Like it's just unbelievably, unfathomably unfathomable in that way. And, uh, but animals have a very different approach to it in my experience. And since they know what's going on, they're kind of looking at us like, um, what are you so worried about? Or why are you so upset? And, they're already very well practiced at going in and out of their bodies, as it were. They can see on different levels of vision and hear on different levels of hearing things that we cannot. So we have no idea what kind of world they or worlds that they really occupy. So they may be much more familiar with these invisible places that we have yet to experience. So when they transition or leave their body, every single time they told me like it was like, they don't even remember it. They still consider themselves very much alive. And if there's an emotional connection between us, they will hang out about where you are. So I always counsel people, like when a pet has left their body and you've buried them or cremated them or whatever, they're still there wondering why you are not talking to them. They still expect you to see them and they expect you to communicate with them. So do so. And a lot of people report all kinds of very interesting phenomena that happen afterwards. And they are the peripheral part of our eyes are so sensitive that often you see this movement out of the peripheral vision or you can hear things in some way or some sort of emo overwhelming emotion will come about. And because they're so non-judgmental and unbiased about us and they prefer, you know, they prefer us uh, above all that when we transition very often, they're the first ones to greet us because it's sort of like someone, for some people, they may have no beliefs whatsoever in the afterlife or they just think it's just, just done. And then when they wake up in this place, they're kind of scared or frightened or bewildered or, you know, and so for some people to come up to them in spirit and say, you know, sit down, I have to tell you something. Usually they'll send an animal first that the person will recognize and this is kind of a liaison between a part of their transition. So the animals can play a great, 
great role in our life here and there. I'd like to talk uh, more about Tim. Uh, one of the fascinating things I discovered in, in reading a bit about his biography is, is that uh, before he died, he had co-authored a book with uh, the well-known psychic Alex Tannis. In, in fact, uh, I've done a couple of interviews about Alex Tannis from people who knew him or were inspired by him. I'm going to link in the upper right-hand corner of the screen for our viewers to those earlier interviews. But uh, it's quite clear that prior to his death, Tim was already uh, deeply engaged in exploring psychic realities. Yes, that's true. Uh, towards the end of his life here, he was a freelance editor and writer um, for various publishing houses and um, that he... Uh, someone, it was orchestrated for him in some sort of a way to meet Alex and, and help Alex write a book. So, um, th that was a very new thing for Tim in many ways to actually interact with someone who had a lot of knowledge and history about that subject and was very active in it. Not some like, you know, fly by night person or book or something this is like the real thing and it really shook him up and he became such a pain in the ass because he became this such a know-it-all about all things psychic when he was like doing the book um but simply because he was just so excited about it but he sort of had to take it on and try it and it was like it was just orchestrated you know it was the last book that he had worked on before he transitioned um and he didn't he didn't talk much about Alex. I think Alex kind of silenced him. Just his presence made Tim get very quiet, which was unusual for Tim because usually he was just always just had things to talk about. But when it came to Alex, he just got very quiet and introspective. Now, from the time that you first uh, experienced Tim, I gather it lasted only a few seconds, but it appeared to be a, a, a full-bodied materialization right in your bedroom. Sitting on your bed, you re remembered the clothes he was wearing in great detail, and, and then he disappeared quickly. But from that time until the time when you began to have regular ongoing communication with him, and I gather you've been having that now for decades, uh, there was a period uh, that you needed to uh, really uh, solidify that connection. I think it took a couple of years, if, if I'm correct. Solidify is an interesting word. How are you using it? Well, I guess that's kind of a material word, isn't it? Uh, but I, I'm under the impression that, that the first early communications with him after that experience were, were somewhat irregular and tentative, that it took a while for ongoing regular communication uh, between the two of you to be established. Uh, or am I misreading the book? No, that's, that's right. And before it was... Um, at some point communicating what seemed like thinking, like he could pick up my thoughts. And then, and then when I was able, it takes a great deal for people to kind of separate all the committees of voices in their head, um, to even find their own voice. But if you, and I've done a lot of work on that to find what I could call my authentic voice. So 
um, through many, many years of, of, I've been meditating since I was 12 years old, um, that that allowed me to, to have a certain degree of silence so that I was able to eventually recognize, it sounds tacky, but like the vibration of his voice, the resonance, his signature in some sort of a way. So we started re- building a resonance and he would have to kind of lower his, and I would have to raise mine and sort of meet in that way. And it was a very slow, gradual, cumulative process, which reflects what many mediums talk about. They talk about developing their mediumship, and it can take years and years of um, d- devoted attention and focus on that. And I was so, we were so focusing on each other. And, and because we still, where we still had the same kind of sense of humor that bonded us when he was in body here. And we still had the same kind of intellectual curiosity that bonded us. And so that like energy was just sort of building and building. And then it would progress. Like if people say here on earth, like our relationship has progressed to a new level. Like I feel like I, I know you even better and we can almost sit in each other with silence without talking it was that kind of relationship building process. And, um, at that time there were many, um, the people in spirit who were maybe once when they were here, they were um, all kinds of doctors and researchers and scientists and technicians. And they were just very, they're still carry that kind of uh, momentum with them on the other side. And so they were very attracted to what was happening with Tim and I. And then they started suggesting to him to suggest to me, you know, why don't you, you know, would you be want to do some experiments? So there was a lot of experimentation and exploration of trying different ways to communicate. And all that just kind of added and added and added and built and built and built and grew until it manifested in um, his actual physical man- manifestation or it appeared to be a physical manifestation. I'm just using the word physical for lack of, of language because language starts failing um, once you try to describe the numinous that's happening to you. One of the uh, really intriguing findings uh, that you report in your book is that scientists on the other side, you refer to them as the risen, uh, some of them uh, who were skeptical about the afterlife, uh, one, I would assume they would re- wake up and say, oh my gosh, I was wrong. But uh, what Tim seems to be reporting in your book is that, no, they become skeptical that the earth plane ever existed or was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just as, as our environment here is so overwhelmingly complex and and paradoxical, um, and mysterious and more questions and answers arise of our experience. Same thing wherever they are in their geography, I call it, um, that the geography arises, our geography, quantum scientists are telling us, suggesting that our reality arises out of our minds, out of our mental experience with dark matter or whatever they want to call it. Um, same thing. It, that just completely just goes and gets expanded. And so, it's so distractingly beautiful and overwhelming and bizarre over there when someone finally is starting to connect with their geography and with people and that they completely forget about us 
in that way. Like what their past life on the earth, if you want to call it that, just kind of pales in consideration, just sort of fades away. It's maybe parallels the process of when, you know, decades later, the person that we lost to to so-called death kind of fades in some sort of a way because life happens. So life continues to happen for them. And Tim was was very tickled when he would because he was able to stay connected with me and still understood that the earth was a real place for me and that there were things happening and I could tell him what was going on when he would share this with them. And they would say, well, how, how do you know that's real? Um, that just, that just doesn't make any sense. Like, how can a place like what you're calling Earth exist? It just, it seems to defy all the laws that we know here. And it just is not rational. And it just sounds like some sort of a nightmare that, you know, it, like they've, they're totally have kind of, um, it's what I call psycho-spiritual amnesia. Like they've developed their own level of psycho-spiritual amnesia there. And, and Tim gave up trying to convince them in some kind of way. Cause he said, cause we don't have any instruments that can measure such a place. We don't have any recordings that we know of. And it, so every, it's just as crazy and wonderful and vibrant there as it is here and unpredictable as well. Another really fascinating uh, thing I found in your book, uh, and you referred to it a moment ago when you mentioned your authentic self, is you'd write about the personalities that we form, or multiple personalities in some cases, as, as somehow being inauthentic expressions that we use in order to um, be approved of or, um, you know, make friends. I think it's something every teenager goes through, uh, the development of personality, uh, but that we have to uh, move beyond the persona in order to get in touch with our authentic self. And in your communications with Tim, the authentic self becomes very important. Right. And so, Authentic self is kind of an overused term now, but I'll use it, use it anyway, because one's experience of it changes. And so one's understanding or personal definition of it will change. Um, persona, we mentioned in the book is, um, personality. It's, it's, it's from the Greek word for mask. And the Greeks would wear these amazing mask to portray different emotions on their in their outdoor amphitheaters and their outdoor stages because people were very far back and um couldn't necessarily see their faces so the mask is portray the emotions and they became that personality and it conveyed something to the the watchers the observers but when the the actors got off stage they took off the mask and they knew that they were not the mask that that's not who they were um, and they return to who they were. So it's kind of a parallel. What happens to most of us, the vast majority of people here, is it, 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 it appears so to me that we develop all different kinds of masks to wear for different situations. There's the mask that we wear when we go back home for Thanksgiving for our family, and the mask we wear when we see our boss, and the mask we wear when we're um, with our significant other or when we're with our children. And we get so used to wearing these masks so often we never take them off. It's, and so you're, who we really are becomes lost, buried in that. So there's this process of um, recognizing the usefulness of the mask or the fun of the mask, but when to take it off and 
and it's just like they say, well, just be who you are. And often people say, but I don't know who I am. And that's because there's, there's all these different personalities and personas going on. So there's a whole chapter in there about what we're, how we're defining what people call the ego mind and, um, what it is and what it isn't and how, and what it's for and what it's not for and how it developed. And because once you, we leave the bio form and we occupy a different form, where, like where Tim is, um, that's informed by mind, the human ego mind doesn't go. It doesn't go at all. And the ego mind seems to understand this and, and is, we could say, is afraid or fears it in some kind of a way. So it's sort of an odd survival trait that, that we've developed. So it gets very complex and, and I'm quite proud and pleased of the, the way I was able to, um, articulate the complexity of this in the book. Um, at, at quite a bit of depth. And so uh, even though I don't share with my psychotherapy patients that I'm a medium, I share a lot of this information with them. And so it's been very, very helpful in terms of therapy and, and uh, production of personal growth. As I recall, Tim provides um, an interesting example, if I remember this correctly, of individuals who are risen in the afterlife who have their own guides who are with them and who they trust as, as spiritual advisors. But he said these guides can be inauthentic uh, representations of aspects of their personas that they haven't let go of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it speaks to what we call imagination. That imagination um, is real. Uh, there's a reality to it, and and there's no restrictions on imagination. We, we know scientifically or medically that the brain is pretty much unable to tell the difference between what we call reality and what we call virtual reality. That this you um, you can recreate in your mind. The same when you recreate in your imagination a very pleasurable experience and you're not actually on the beach, but you're thinking about the beach, we would see the same parts of the brain light up. We would see the same kind of chemistry starting to flood through the body. The same kind of feelings feelings are going. And that's just that's an imagination. So imagination continues on that side. And so it's the, the psychology, if you want, if that's what we can call it, I don't know what their word for it is really. Um of their own development is very much like an adolescent or a teenager for some people that they're kind of going through these developmental stages of trying to find an individuality and how they want to navigate the cosmos and move about the universe. And so they're trying on all kinds of fun, dramatic ideas to play. People say, well, why are we here? Or why are we there? What's, what's the meaning of life? To me, the only meaning I could, or the only purpose is to play. Like wherever we are, we, we have to be playing, not working. And so people over there still may bring with them some ideas about play and work that have to be revised and changed. And so they're, they're playing with that. And they may actually create their own, um, aspects of themselves that will grow later that they could call guides. And yet even that is being guided by, uh, unseen guides around them as it is for us right now. It's as if there are levels beyond levels beyond levels. Even the guides have guides. Exactly. Yeah, it's not as if, it is. 
one of the things I really enjoyed in your book was the emphasis on imagination. You even referred to uh, the work of Henri Corbin, the French uh, philosopher who was a good friend of Carl Jung. We've referred to him many times on the New Thinking Aloud channel and his interest in uh, the 12th century uh, Persian mystic uh, Surawardi. Uh, and, and the emphasis on imagination as, as a tool for mystical exploration. You, you actually say that this is a, a good way for people who wish to establish contact with a uh, deceased loved one is, is to imagine that uh, you can feel them or see them. And people are imagining all the time, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. And so that imagination is creating an inner reality experience for them whether they're consciously aware of it or not and the more the more we can find ways of becoming consciously aware of these realities i call them geographies um, um, for lack of a better better term that the book also stipulates a lot that everyone has med- what we could call mediumship abilities like it's it's not just relegated to the saint or the mystic or just you know the old lady down the road or something like everyone has these abilities and most, uh, it seems to me that we're born with them quite actively. And if you've ever been around newborn babies, there, there, there's something going on. They're seeing and talking and listening to things that we can't do. And then later that's sort of talked out of us in some way. So there's a chapter in the book to discuss how to achieve evidential contact. Because it doesn't matter what, for me, it doesn't matter what another medium tells me often, you know, they, they may be picking up things and stuff, but I'm looking for evidence. I want something that I, that has meaning to me. So this chapter talks about using your imagination. Once you get past the, um, once you can correct the belief that imagination isn't real, but that there is a reality to imagination, that this is the realm that you share with your loved ones who also have an imagination and they're much more artistically skilled with it at this point, especially those who choose to to study it as an art. So we use our imagination to connect with our loved one's imagination and we imagine ourselves having a conversation with them and they're imagining the same thing too. And it takes usually sometimes people who just do it get startling results at the very beginning because their resistance is very low and they're not really emotionally invested in it. Later, people try too hard. And so it's also learning how to relax and have fun and not make work out of it. Um, when you're dreaming, that's we could say that's your imagination that's allowed to sort of run wild and run free. And often that's when they will step into that imagination realm to connect with us. When we wake up, usually the conscious brain then kicks right in and we have very little memory. We have no memory, perhaps, of having been with our loved one in the dream state or the imaginative state. But we still have this feeling like we just feel better or something. There's something really happened. I wonder what it was. And then we find ourselves thinking about them. It's the same thing if you can do daydreaming about a, um, for 20 minutes about your loved one or something like that. It it changes the levels of vibration of your of your or the brain waves in some sort of a way that starts resonating with theirs in some sort of a way. So I'm I'm saying all this not as done deals, but as suggestions towards how we can experiment and explore 
using ourselves as the instruments of exploration experimentation and that's what tim and i were doing working with scientists they said let's try these experiments and see what happens and let's explore this and see what happens and many very weird things happen that were sometimes hard to retain a memory uh, so if you were to ask someone like what were you imagining about yesterday they may not be able to tell you or they may be depending on upon the strength of it so you and, and Tim, I gather, are still in regular ongoing communication. For the most part, yeah. It's like, um, I still have a life here. I've got a lot of stuff that requires my focus, and so I sort of forget him in some ways. And he has his own stuff that he's doing and far out. And But we can still, we're still always staying in touch in some sort of a way. Like He's very intensely, strongly here with me right now in feeling, and it's, it's kind of overwhelming um, in a way, like my body feels like it wants to burst into water or to melt into tears or something because it's just a strong emotional connection because we're so focused on this subject and, and he's here with us as well, too. Do you expect that uh, the work that you've done together, the production of uh, the books that you've written will continue, for example? He intimates, yes. I'm, I'm reluctant because um, it takes an incredible amount of time and energy and focus to be able to to manifest because i wouldn't say i actually wrote these books although i am a good writer um i come from a family of writers but um and so does he but this is manifested and so it's much easier for him i like to think than it is is for me um because of the way time works in here in some way but what i have discovered is that any future works are already in progress and they're being worked on in the background and when i'm ready i can access it and just immediately just start it just flows out in some kind of a way so it was like that with the other books too like they were just it was like going on in the background like there's this typing pool going on in the background and sometimes i could hear them typing away back there and then they would have to find a way to re-articulate that information to Tim, who would articulate it to me, and then there were some other guys that articulated it to me. Um, it's complex because a lot of the information, as you mentioned, is very dense. It's a good word for it. It's very layered. So people often have written to me saying, um, asking me a question. I said, well, the answer to that, as I can see, is on page 133. And they go and look and say, but that wasn't there before. I did not. I swear to God that wasn't there before. It's like the book is writing itself for me. So there's sort of a living energy to this of how people are able to access this information. And the same is true for me. Um, Tim likened it to a sort of spirit pony express where there were some very, very deep uh, spiritual ideas or concepts that don't really um are kind of rare in some way and rare in the way of like we talk about rare metals or rare earth um, that are above and beyond even him or above and beyond his his guides there too and so it would that information was coming from someone way way out there i imagine it and they do their form of mediumship there and they relay that to a medium on above Tim's level, who then relays it to a medium uh, uh, still above Tim's level, and it's finally someone down to Tim's level, and then they relay it to me. And so it's sort of like that, that funny game of telephone where someone's trying to relay this information to me. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and sometimes um, it's orchestrated, so it's it appears like we we've got a window of five minutes for this to come through. So um, 
go to the bathroom and then go sit still and just get ready. And so those deeper things would come through. And then once those deeper things came through, they were like a seed that then when planted in me began to blossom, they were full, like a seed is full of all this information we can't see. And yet it has the complete plant and flower and fruit in it, the instructions. And so it's like these seeds would come to me and once they were planted with me and I was receptive and I knew how to nourish them, they began to grow and the information became coming out. So there's, that's kind of what accounts for the continuity of the material that it's all connected in some kind of a way. It does seem very well connected. No, it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, I thought that was a very elegant description. Well, I, I know you also, if, if I recall properly, you, you write about the fact that uh, uh, mediums often have health issues that uh, uh, while we have this talent, it can it can sometimes be very taxing on the on the bioform. Uh, have you had issues like that yourself? It depends. Again, just as it would on um, someone's physical health here, because we have, for for lack of um, better ways to say it, we have more than one body that are interpenetrating. And people talk about the physical body, the astral body, the etheric body, and some cultures have like a lot of them and others just have a few. And so I try to keep it as simple as possible. But um, in the way that our, our physical body um, needs recharging sometimes, our other bodies do as well too. And those other bodies are usually what come into play uh, when we plug in, when a medium is, is plugging in, I'll put it that way. And so there's this there's this interchange of energy, and usually the higher vibrating realities require more energy and can utilize more energy than we can. We're we're kind of more formed, um, constrained in our form in that way, and they're less constrained. And so um, there's a lot of energy flowing, but they often, in order to maintain contact with us, have to kind of mix some of our chemistry with theirs. Um, I'll use the word chemistry loosely because they tell me that what we understand as chemistry here is completely wrong. Um, but we're, but it's the best that we can do that how they understand chemistry is a very different thing. So they're mixing chemistry with ours and that can deplete a person. And so if a medium doesn't have good, um, skills at qual maintaining quality of life, self care, physical self-care and mental health care and emotional mental care and have a good nourishing life, they'll become malnourished in some way, whether they're doing mediumship or not. Mediumship just kind of takes it out of you in some way. So so I do know mediums who are very skilled at, at taking time in preparation before and then after as well, too, sort of a building up and then a closing down. But many... Um, as a species, we're very lazy. So many people just kind of don't do that and don't take care of themselves um, and and begin to develop what seems to be, uh, for the most part, a lot of blood sugar issues. So, it's, so I mean, I know it depends on the level of mediumship because there's so many different forms. Um, so I'm speaking here of not just mental mediumship, but also physical mediumship, which is very rare, but that's kind of my specialization and what I know most about. Um, and the physical mediums who I know today on the planet who are very, we could say, people like to say they're very powerful, but they're just very good at what they do. Um, 
have the worst quality of life habits and and they're sitting around just drinking Red Bull after Red Bull because they're so exhausted and they can't do much more than that. And they get very, very little sleep or they, they smoke too much or it's kind of co- trying to compensate in some sort of a way. So there has to be a lot of extra care taken if, if you are focusing or over-focusing on mediumship experiences. Well, August go forth. This has been an amazing conversation. I have to commend you for uh, your honesty, your openness, and uh, your ability to articulate very, very subtle concepts. It's been a great joy for me to have this time with you uh, and to share it with our viewers. And uh, I'm also very pleased to be able to say that we plan uh, future conversations as well. So thank you so very very much for being with me. Thank you for for letting me get it out um, because it's 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 such a blessed sacred experience for me to have like this where with the, the kind of mind and soul that you have that it creates a space that I'm not regurgitating just stuff stories but that new things are coming in that I can can kind of bring in and you can kind of bring in and um for me it fills me with what you're calling joy as well so the more joyful experiences i can have around this material the the books um tim always said that the books were written for people in the future but he never said when the future is it's like like the books have been around for a while but they still seem to have a life of their own and and the material like i read them a lot myself too because there's so much stuff in there that i forget and i read it and it's inspirational to me so having an experience like this is sort of like just writing yet another another book which i love and for those of you watching thank you for being with us